Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the AlbumReview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thank you for listening and thank you for your interactions and feedback. Your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. On today's episode, I am joined by special guest Brian O'Connor. Brian was a guest on episode 19 of the podcast and he's back to do an album review. Today we'll be reviewing a classic album which came out in 1994 that many of you out there may not remember. It's Jeff Buckley's only album released when he was alive. The album is called Grace. Back on episode 19, Brian and I talk about two books he published titled For the Record, My 1,000 Favorite Albums from 1957 to 2017, and his other book, Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists. You can find both links to Brian's books in the bookstore at albumreview.net. And as always, before I get started, I'm reminding you that to listen to any of my podcast episodes, just go to albumreview.net and click on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. In addition to this, you can read well over 30 written reviews at albumreview.net and pick up some merchandise from your favorite bands, such as t-shirts, albums, sound systems, and as I mentioned before, the bookstore. Want to learn more about your favorite musician or band that you can't find on the internet? Go to albumreview.net and click on the store tab where you can grab a copy of different biographies and autobiographies from artists such as Faith No More, The Story of Spotify, Eric Clapton, Motley Crue, Eddie Van Halen, Pink Floyd, Metallica, Tom Petty, and as I mentioned, I also have both Brian's books and other books from previous authors that I've interviewed on the show. Well, isn't that special? All right, sit back, grab your kale milkshake, relax, and listen to this album review of Jeff Buckley's only studio album released while he was still alive, 1994's Grace. Hey everybody, so joining me here today on this podcast review for the second time is author Brian O'Connor. Brian is a music enthusiast and author of Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists, and For the Record, My 1,000 Favorite Albums from 1957 to 2017. Today, Brian and I are going to review Jeff Buckley's only studio album, 1994's Grace. In Brian's book, For the Record, he lists this album as his 48th favorite album out of 1,000. Not too shabby. If you haven't had a chance to read Brian's book yet, you can pick up a copy at albumreview.net in the bookstore. And for a list of 1,000 albums, like I said, 48, that's, that's pretty good. So, Brian, welcome back, man. Thanks for joining me again today for what should be an interesting review. Thanks for having me, Greg. Glad to yeah. be here. Excited to talk about Jeff Buckley. Yes, absolutely. Recorded at Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, New York, beautiful area, Grace was produced by Andy Wallace. Andy has a laundry list of accolades, including production, mixing, and engineering contributions to albums from bands such as, get this, Slayer, Run DMC, Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Brian, one of your favorites, Helmet, Fishbone, Rush, 
Rage Against the Machine. I could go on and on and on, but I counted more than 75. So now I was introduced to Jeff Buckley through a former girlfriend many, many years ago who had what I think was an underrated ear for good music. When she first played me Grace, I was mesmerized by the strange minor chord structures that exist all over this record. Practically every verse of each song is in a minor chord and then only to explode during the chorus into a very brief major chord. So for those of you guys out there who are going, huh, what's a, what's a major chord? What's a, what's a minor chord? Think of it this way. This, this, is, this is easy. I always put it in this context. Almost every time you feel that hook in a song, usually during the part that repeats itself, the chorus, that is typically played in a major chord, such as like an E, an A, a G, a D, and so on and so forth. The darker, more kind of mysterious parts of music and sounds in music many times are written in minor chords. So even if you're an average musician, you can play a major chord and a minor chord fairly well. But what Jeff Buckley does so seamlessly in his music is develop minor chords and carefully place them into his songs. There are just many times these are communicated as major chords mostly. So Jeff is really good at this. And to really understand what I'm talking about, you guys are just going to have to listen to this album. And for just the second time now, my second podcast uh, out of 22, I'm now including clips of the songs that we talk about to give you guys, the listeners, an immediate opportunity to understand what we're describing. So all right, I got to tell a quick story. When Brian and I committed to reviewing this album several weeks back, I didn't pull it up on my car stereo until about three weeks ago. And while driving for about the first half mile, I remember thinking, should I pick another album? For some reason, I wasn't committing to it. I don't know why. I wasn't getting the feelings that, that I remember. But then when I got to the next traffic light, I tuned into Jeff's voice and I'm telling you people that are either reading this review or listening to this review podcast that Jeff might have the greatest male singing voice of all time there. I just said it. So just listening to him orchestrate his vocals over this music gives me dangerously deep goosebumps. <laughs> so, all right, Brian, you put grace at number 48 in your book, right in front of Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, and just after Layla and Other Sorted Love Songs by Derek and the Dominoes, two incredible albums. Talk to me about what are some of the, the factors that played into you putting Grace at number 48 in your book? So 48 is certainly rarefied air, definitely, as you mentioned, one of the great albums. Uh, you, you posit that Jeff Buckley might have the greatest male singing voice of all time. There have been a couple billion men in history, so that's a claim like that is always unlikely, but I'd have a hard time rattling off a bunch of names of, of better singers. He certainly had an incredible vocal range, uh, just an emotional weight that he brought to a, a lot of this music. Um, Jeff Buckley has a, a background that's different than a lot of rock stars, right? I mean, his dad was, uh, you could almost call him a rock star, but it's kind of a jazz folk fusion, a lot of kind of cacophony and, and chaos in his music. Um, I, I believe his mother was a musician. I know he has some kind of opera in his family background. Uh, he studied classical music and you can, you can hear it. You can hear just diverse influences. Um, it's, 
it's a 90s rock album and it, it sounds a little bit like classic rock you talked about my 47th and 49th favorite albums are, are right there in that same vein uh they're classic rock albums there's a lot of classic rock it's not my top thousand albums uh, I, I wouldn't say are loaded with classic rock but it's definitely, uh, definitely no a lot it's of definitely that. diverse and then that again you know going back to what i reiterated a hundred times when we talked about your books a couple of podcasts ago it's such a diverse range and that's why i really wanted to have you on this particular one because i think a lot of people equate me to you know greg likes rock and roll well in the last few years i've really gotten heavier into hip-hop but when i read your book i immediately was impressed because i was like brian isn't just pushing one genre here he, he knows everything about are maybe maybe we'll say this to be fair he knows a good deal about a number of different genres where i like to think i know a lot about one particular genre and maybe not so much in another so i give you a lot of credibility there um yeah. and you definitely have some you know some classic ones some classic rock ones in your list but you also got some ones that are you know albums i never even heard of man so i i find that pretty cool yeah, thank you. And I think Buckley fits in with that theme. I mean, he's definitely influenced by Led Zeppelin. There's some some classic rock uh, that you can hear. Uh, there's also a Nina Simone cover here. There's a there's a track that's more or less an opera track that just gets included in this kind of '90s rock album. Uh, mm -hmm. He he listened to everything, brought in everything, and then uh, spat out uh, this just one absolute classic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that um, I didn't even realize it is until I really dug deep and I'm probably going to be starting a lot of sentences with that uh, during this conversation, but, you know, there was actually uh, songs that had been either unfinished or recorded, but never really um, mastered that Jeff was working on when he died and that was later released. And so I actually had the luxury of going back and listening to some of that. So when I said earlier that Grace is his only album, it was really his only album that he released when he was alive. So as I was, you know, diving back and doing a lot of research, I can't remember, maybe, maybe with the exception of the band when, when I talked about them several weeks back, but I can't remember a time when I, I learned more than I had never known and really enjoyed learning about a musician. I think because Jeff just kind of seemed like, Kind of a recluse, uh, and I'll get into some reasons that support that in a in a in a in a bit. But um, you know, Jeff was was once asked when when was it that he knew he wanted to be a singer songwriter you know touring musician, and he said, you know, when I was about thirteen years old, I did my first gig in a club, and and that was it. You know, uh, I went I went I like this. This place smells bad. I can be here. Everybody's crazy. I don't have to go to school. Well, I have to go to school, but I won't. So, you know, I picked up on so many things. Buckley was an incredibly guarded person. You know, it might be going a little bit too far to say an idiot savant, but a lot of times that's what the, some of the greats are. I, I say Buckley was because, you know, as we had briefly mentioned, he died tragically in 1997. He was, um, for those of you that don't know the story, Jeff was swimming one night right outside of Memphis, Tennessee, while taking a break from recording. And this was the music that would later be released. And the story goes that Jeff and a roadie in his band, a guy named Keith Foti or Foti, they were hanging out at Wolf River Harbor, a, a channel on the Mississippi River, and Jeff decided to go swimming but Fodai remained on shore. And so Buckley jumped into the river fully clothed. 
it was late May of 97. So the weather in Tennessee is really warm that time of year. And when Keith Fotai left the riverbank to move some music equipment away from the water's edge, apparently he turned back around and noticed Jeff was no longer in sight. And strangely, the wake of a passing tugboat swept him underwater and Jeff's body was discovered six days later by passengers on a riverboat and it had been caught up in several branches when it was recovered. So this is what was really interesting. And Brian, I want your, you know, your, your take on this in, in a moment. Jeff's autopsy revealed no signs of drugs or alcohol in his system, and his death was just ruled an accident, a, a freakish drowning. What a story, you know? So to make the, the story even more sad, Jeff's father, uh, as uh, Brian, you had mentioned, Tim, Tim Buckley, he died in 1975 when Jeff was just nine years old. Now, Tim reportedly died of an overdose of heroin, which is strange because I remember years ago hearing, and maybe it was an urban legend or an old wives tale that Tim also died by drowning. But several stories I found recently refuted that claim. Brian, do you have any knowledge of this quote unquote urban legend? So I, I understand as well that, that Tim Buckley died of an overdose. I do think when you Google Tim Buckley's death, you get information about Jeff Buckley's death. Just right. his star shone a little brighter. And I wonder right. if, uh, if legends might start, <laughs> the 21st century legends might actually start from just kind of the misinformation that comes from that kind of off the cuff research. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good point. I, I obviously I wanted to set the record straight here, but you know, I, I, I do remember hearing that story and I guess it was somebody that told me, I don't remember who, and I guess I just um, picked it up and, and took it as, as gospel. So we'll get into, you know, Jeff and his feelings about his dad in a little bit, but I think it's an interesting connection. All right. So on to the record itself, this album grace kicks off with the song Mojo pin. It's an out of the ordinary opener to a debut album. In my, in my opinion, the, the, the track showcases Jeff's voice like most of the other tracks on this album. So listen to this song on a pair of headphones, you guys. Jeff sounds like he's standing right next to you, singing right in your ear, opening right away with him whispering into the mic, and the song takes you on a relaxed journey. And as I had noted earlier in this review, the minor chords come out to play in this song, and this track has somewhat of a psychedelic feel. But about three minutes and 45 seconds in, the song then takes a left turn and just proves nothing was like this in 1994, nothing.
How do you feel this song kind of matches up to some of the other tracks that were out in 94? Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It didn't sound like much else that was out there. I mean, it's uh, it's it's kind of a warm up for what's to come on the rest of the album. Uh, and I don't think Mojo Pin really stands out. I think by the time you get to the end of this album, you've kind of forgotten about that one. Well, seven or eight of these other songs are probably going to stick with you for a long time. I would agree. But you mentioned it's got that kind of slow build. It's kind of ethereal. You're introduced to the falsetto. Uh, that you're going to hear so much of on this album. It's, it, it doesn't really show off the band. He's got a good band. But it, like you said, for almost four minutes, you don't hear the band. And then toward the end, what you do hear is Tim Buckley. And this might be the only time on Grace that you hear Tim Buckley. You just get this pounding, this chaos, this cacophony. Um, it, it's tortured. And I think you can, you, you talk a little bit about Jeff Buckley's death uh, it's an accidental death it doesn't necessarily paint a picture of someone who lived a tortured life I think Tim Buckley actually did and I think I think Jeff he obviously lost his his father at a young age and I, right. I think he's one of these one of these artists whose whose brain works a little differently and I think um yeah. some of that some of that uh some of his life came through uh now towards the end of Mojo Pen. Now you have uh, you have some experience, um, you know, just listening and understanding, knowing a little bit more about Tim Buckley. For our listeners who've never heard him, and actually me included, who I don't really know, you know, describe. I think you did a little bit just there a moment ago, but describe a little bit about kind of Tim's music and how it differed from his son's. Yeah, um, I think the the best starting point for someone looking to get into Tim Buckley is probably Star Sailor kind of a, a freeform jazz record with one of those kind of voice as instrument. Um, he, he, he doesn't huh. write, he doesn't communicate through his lyrics so much as he communicates through his voice as one more whale in the night. Uh, that's a W-A-I-L. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't hear Tim Buckley much and the rest of this album. Uh, okay. which is just, again, diffuse uh, in influence, but, but not necessarily a shadow of, of his dad. Released during what I think really the, the height of Granger, maybe as it was slowly starting to, you know, maybe go over the hill and come down. Uh, this song and the, really the entire album were way ahead of their time, I, I think, personally. I, I, I know I say this a lot in my podcast, but I'm just... I was listening to it and comparing it to a lot of the other things that I was listening to and that were really out in, in 94. I feel like it can certainly hold up against today's artists and musical genres as well. And, you know, also Jeff's lyrics are really telling. The, the, the word, the one word that comes to me right away that I want to pull out about this when I think of this album is the word romantic. Romantic is the best word. Now, not in a Sinatra way where he's talking about cuddling up next to the fireplace with his baby. Buckley's lyrics are deep. 
they're just so deep that they cut your soul. Now I know there's some covers on this album, but even his covers that he picks are deep. It, it, now in Mojo Pin, Jeff sings, don't want to weep for you. Don't want to know. I'm blind and tortured. The white horses flow. The memories fire. The rhythms fall slow. Black beauty. I love you so. Okay, what happened? I just blacked out. D did I just read something there? I mean, I, like, I, I, I'm, I, I, countless times listening to this album, similar to like Bob Dylan in the sense, and I'm not saying their music is the same, but just, I, I was mesmerized by the lyrics and the next verse would come up and I would find myself thinking about the previous one. So, all right, moving, moving along, the second tune, the title track, Grace. What do you think about, about this song, Brian? Yeah, this this is where it gets real. Uh, this is probably my favorite Jeff Buckley song. I think it's both the song that best displays his vocal range, and it's also an ambitious piece of music. But what really strikes me about it is how ominous it feels to someone who knows that Buckley would die three years later after it was recorded. Yeah, uh, I, I think the lyrics seem to pretend his death. Uh, it's my time coming. I'm not afraid, afraid to die. Drink yeah. a bit of wine. We both might go tomorrow, my love. And the rain is falling. I believe my time has come. It reminds me of the pain I might leave, leave behind. Like it's in the biopic that I don't think has happened yet right. <laughs> for Jeff Buckley's life. Right. You picture the scene where he's being swept away uh, down the Wolf River into the Mississippi. Yeah. And this song has to be playing, right? Yeah. That that chaos, that that sense of of hopelessness. Um it, it's eerily similar to the way he'd meet his end. And 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you just drove home my point of the word romantic, right? It's not necessarily like smooching your loved one. It's, it's, there are things that I think there's colors that, that I think are romantic. There are moments, uh, you know, just two people looking at each other that I think can be romantic and hearing his vocals, even if it's about a specific person that he's in love with, just the way he formulates the words are just, you know, really, I think really, really, really romantic. So the tune Grace, I think it, it, it gives rock fans the medicine that they need to continue on, on this rock journey. I, I think the opening riff is addictive. I remember it was the first song that really got my attention as a hook seeking music fan when I first heard it back in the mid nineties. And then again, when I was reacquainted with this record in, in O2, I think this riff is addictive and you'll immediately be about face as your attention grows. <laughs> Filled again with what I was alluding to earlier, minor chords, the song Grace takes you on a, really on a journey to that faithful, you know, when he sings, wait in the fire, wait in the fire. Like that bridge, which is just really kind of in a minor chord, eventually leads you back to that hook riff that I think is impossible not to grab you. And this was the, the first single that Jeff had off the record. So I don't have much to say, except just listen to this guys, just, just listen to the song. So I can remember seeing this video on MTV and it didn't grab me back then. And, and I think I know why I think because this song is so complex, it's, it's not necessarily like structured like a Nirvana song. It's, it's buried in minor chords, but with this angelic voice that doesn't reflect the teenage angst that I was feeling at the time. No, it was more sophisticated, just as Brian was quoting there. It's a, a, a sophisticated rock song that I think was above my pay grade at the time. And, and I, I feel nothing but enjoyment going back now and, and listening to this. And I can see multiple women falling in love with these lyrics, you know? So like I said, in many ways, this is, this is romantic. I'm going to keep coming back to that word. So the, the next track, Last Goodbye, the, the third track, it also gives you a hook riff at the beginning that draws you in. Um, Jeff's vocals begin about 30 seconds in and like the track before it, once again, you're picking yourself up off the ground and wondering, did I pass out? <laughs> This is the pop song. 
Yeah. Right. Agreed. So we talked about Mojo Pin is just kind of that ethereal opener, right? And Grace, that's the rock song. That's the hook. Yeah. Grace brings you into into Jeff Buckley's world. I think Last Goodbye was there to sell some records. Uh, really easy to to kind of get get sucked into it. Um, it's 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 a beautiful song, and he definitely had appreciation for for beauty in all of its forms. And this was this was just the kind of simplest, most straightforward pop song on the album. Yeah, and I, I believe it certainly did very well on the the pop charts. And get into it in a little bit here, but you know, Jeff was for years, and his manager supported this. Uh, you know, Jeff was really not looking to be a pop star at all, and in fact, he did many things to run away from. Um, the pop scene and many really admirable things, I think, if you're really a true artist. So one of the coolest things that I found out, there were so many, but one of the coolest things I found out in my research of this album and of Jeff is his best friend was a guy named Chris Dowd from the funk band Fishbone, who I remember seeing in concert in the 90s. And I was a, a fan. I wouldn't say a diehard fan, but I definitely owned some of their albums. And coincidentally, Jeff was friends with Dowd's girlfriend, a woman named Carla Azar. And in a 2019 interview, Chris Dowd tells the story of the night he met Jeff back in the early 90s. So interestingly enough, Last Goodbye actually has an interesting backstory. In the early to mid 90s, the, the funk band Fishbone, they were crushing record sales and joining major US tours. They were on Lollapalooza. And their keyboardist, Chris Dowd, he told a story to a music magazine on the origin of Jeff's song, Last Goodbye. Uh, one night, Carla, uh, Dowd's girlfriend, and uh, he was a, a classmate of Jeff's at the Musicians Institute in Los Angeles. They, uh, Carla called him and said she was going for a ride and her friend Jeff was going to be in the car. So Dowd noted that night he was burned out from touring with Fishbone because they toured nonstop for two and a half years. And Dowd admitted he was also drunk when he got the call from Carla. But they picked him up. He jumped in the car with her and this new dude, Jeff, who we had never met, who was sitting in the back seat. And while they drove, Dowd remembered, I remember it was raining. I had my head out the window and it rained all over Jeff. He sat there quietly. He didn't say anything. Carla called me and told me later to call Jeff and apologize. And so I did, and we became friends. And Jeff ended up living with me for like a year and a half, and I knew him as a guitar player only. I had no idea he could even sing. Brian, did you have any uh, idea of this connection at all between Chris and, and Fishbone and Jeff? I didn't know that story at all, but yeah, it's, I didn't it's either. Uh, certainly haunting to hear someone referred to as a best friend and to hear that they met in the 90s and that Jeff Buckley was gone by 1997. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, Chris and Jeff ended up sharing an apartment together in LA and that's when the song Last Goodbye started coming together. So um, I've got some, some quotes here that I found from Jeff when he was being interviewed. Chris Dowd noted that the song Last Goodbye is about Carla Azar, especially that line, Kiss me out of desire, not consolation. Dowd went on to say, quote, every guy at that time was in love with Carla. She played drums. She was pretty. She was the coolest girl you ever met in your entire life. Carla was the perfect girlfriend, but her and Jeff were never a couple, unquote. So this song throws all safety out the window at exactly three minutes in when it hits what 
I think some may call the chorus, some may call a bridge, but the song is so well designed and originally structured. It doesn't follow that verse, chorus, verse pattern. So Brian, you know what I'm talking about? About three minutes in the riff reaches like kind of like a hand down your esophagus and just carefully flicks your heart when Jeff sings, did you say, no, this can't happen to me? Did you rush to the phone to call? Was there a voice unkind in the back of your mind saying maybe you didn't know him at all? You didn't know him at all. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely resonates with me as well. And it's, I'm just thinking about how you and I had uh, such different interpretations here. I mean, there is there is some depth to the song, which I just call this most straightforward pop song. <laughs> I think it, it is the easiest hook on the album, but totally. But you're right. It's uh, it's not uh, baby love. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean that 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 part that I just quoted there from Jeff. I think that that's the hook. And you're absolutely right. I think that supports your theory. It's not even a theory. It's a fact that this was a pop song. This was written, but it's just, even though it was a radio friendly pop song, the lyrics just go so deep. And that's really, aside from his guitar playing, that's really, I think, where a lot of Jeff's talent was as well. So what I had trouble figuring out was, did Jeff actually have these real life feelings about Carla Azar? Or was this simply a song about a crush with added drama to perk up the song more. Unfortunately, we'll, we'll never know. So this album continues to give you what I like to call paper cuts with the next track, Lilac Wine. I lost myself on a cool damp night. I gave myself in that misty light. I was hypnotized by a strange delight. Under a lilac tree I made wine from the lilac tree Put my heart in its recipe Makes me see what I want to see And be what I want to be When I think more than I want to think do things I never should do I drink much more than I ought to drink Because it brings me back you put these lyrics on lilac wine in the top yeah i don't know maybe best 20 to 30 lyrics i've i've ever read and i really mean that what are your thoughts about this well any credit for those lyrics goes to Nina simone right yeah um, I, I think that a cover right here uh not something i expected out of an album me neither from 
a rock star in the 90s. Uh, I knew Jeff Buckley's work before I knew Nina Simone's work. I heard this song before I ever heard the original, but it's also a, a really welcome diversion. Uh, you know, for a guy whose prominent influence, again, seems to be Led Zeppelin, to throw it back another decade uh, to someone who would never have described herself as a rock star, somebody who traded in blues, who traded in jazz, who absolutely brought torture to her music. Um, yeah. I, you know, I've heard Buckley studied Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, and, and classical music. It, 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 goes, it goes way back. This song is brilliant. It's an inspired choice, and he absolutely does justice to it. I'm going to uh, I'm going to shock you a little bit here because it shocked me. My understanding was that it was a Nina Simone song. Apparently, Nina didn't write it. She performed it and she did an amazing job. Um, some other artists aside from Jeff that that covered the song were Jeff Beck, John Legend, Miley Cyrus and several other musicians. I, I'd be this podcast would be an hour long if I named them all. But James Shelton was an American 1930s Broadway actor, composer, and writer. And he actually wrote this song. Now it was introduced to the public by Hope Fry in the short-lived theater musical review, Dance Me a Song. But again, it was really made more popular by Nina. And then Jeff really took her version and, and then kind of made it a little bit more of his own. But Brian, I don't know about you, man. This song just makes me feel. It, it makes me feel. It makes me think. It, it makes me think of sad moments. It makes me think of happy moments. It's, it's just such a ballad. And a woozy moments, maybe the delirious <laughs> moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I picture Buckley serenading a woman in the front row when I hear this. You know, the song draws a parallel. I think between being drunk, being disoriented, just you know, kind of like what you said. And being in love, you know, it, this is definitely not a workout song. It's not a song you jog to. This is a sitting in a quiet, dark room, watching the artist spill his or her guts out song. So I have much respect for James Shelton and had never heard of him until I researched this. So um, props to him for sure. Yeah, agree. Let's let's give the credit to James Shelton for the lyrics. Uh, but yeah. again, I think Nina Simone brought it to life. And it's interesting to hear. John Legend and Miley Cyrus covering this. I wonder if they see that as a Jeff Buckley cover or as a Nina Simone cover. That's a great question. We'll have to ask them on the next podcast when we have them on. So <laughs> <laughs> the song So Real is the fifth track on this record. And it was Michael Ty, Jeff's guitar player in the band, who noted that the recording of So Real was incredibly spontaneous. Many times, this is how Jeff worked in the studio. The song was also the third single that Jeff released off the album and his vocal track was also done. What I learned really cool. The vocal track on this was done in one take. Uh, Andy Wallace, the producer said it was such a good take that he and Jeff were satisfied and they just decided to keep it. So. Love, let me sleep tonight on your couch. Remember the smell of the fabric of your simple city dress What are your thoughts about this song? 
will admit that the vocals are incredible, but yeah. also that it's not my favorite song. Yeah. You know, on the surface, it feels kind of like teenage navel gazing, right? This <laughs> first brush with existentialism, right? What is real? What's not? Are we real? I don't think it has the depth, at least lyrically, of most of the other tracks in this album. Yeah, I will call this out, though, and this is maybe a more playful way to look at the song. Was Jeff Buckley real? I mean, he was born Jeff Buckley. He was raised Scotty Moorhead, right, which was his middle name and his stepfather's name. And in effect, he kind of chose his birth name as a pen name when he started, when he decided he would be a professional musician. So you brought something really interesting to the surface. I didn't even know that. Out of all my research, I didn't come up with that. So... What was Jeff's birth name again? Jeffrey Scott Buckley was his birth name. So he was born Jeff Buckley. As you mentioned earlier, when he was nine years old, he'd lost his father. Right. His mother married a man named Moorhead. I think he was adopted. I assume he was actually adopted and took the name. But in school, uh, he, was, he was Scott Moorhead. And Scott was his middle name. And his wow. family and friends called him Scotty. Uh, so he I went through much of his young life as Scotty Moorhead. Wow. Huh. Interesting. So do you have an idea as to the timeline as to when he, when he changed it kind of back to Jeff? I mean, it was probably before he became famous because his best buddy, Chris Dowd, knew him as Jeff. And I think you mentioned his uh, having met Chris Dowd in the 90s. So yes. he's in his 20s by now. Right. Jeff's friend, Chris Dowd, who I'm going to be talking a lot uh, about during this, he was present actually in the studio during the recording of this song and agreeing with the spontaneity description, Dowd mentioned, quote, it was exactly like that. Also keep in mind, I had never seen Jeff in process. I had no idea I was witnessing this as being the take. It is such a procedure to capture the take that I don't think until Michael told you that story, did I realize that he had done that spontaneously perfect take. It is such a rarity to see that happen in the flesh, but knowing Jeff and his process, he had done it and thrown it all away tore it down a thousand times in his head before he actually shared it with us. Then also thinking back, we had such a close relationship and were so protective of one another. It was also him sharing with me and saying, I got this, Chris. You don't have to be scared for me anymore. I have become the artist you always wanted and helped me to become. We would slide in and out of those roles for our entire relationship, friend, brother, loved one, father, brother, unquote. So just an, a, an awesome story to, I think, a, a really interesting song. The next track may be the album's most popular, um, depending on who you ask. Hallelujah, which um, is a Leonard Cohen cover. <sighs> this song, I'm going to be honest, it, it pretty much brings me to tears every time I listen to it. And that's why I can't listen to it that much anymore. <laughs> it's just that moving. <sighs>
Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Your faith was strong. I don't listen to it as much anymore because it just brings so much emotion back. Um, Brian, when was the first time you heard this song? And did you know it was a Leonard Cohen song? I probably first heard the song when I bought the album, which was probably in the late 90s, 97 or 98. Okay. I don't think this was the song that sold copies of Grace, but I think it's probably the most common entry point to Jeff Buckley's catalog for people just discovering him now in the 21st century. I would agree. With I that. agree. It is a breathtakingly beautiful song. Um, I did hear Buckley's version again before I heard Leonard Cohen's. And of course, we're recording this in 2021 and there are probably 2021 different artists that have recorded right. Hallelujah at this point. Right. Uh, this is my favorite bedtime song. And I've been singing it to my kids for years and they're old enough now that they sing with me when I do, although it's a lot more rare now that I sing a bedtime song to <laughs> either awesome. of my kids. Uh, yeah, it is. It's stunning. Um, Buckley's lyrics are a little different than Cohen's. He didn't use all of Leonard Cohen's verses and he added a couple of his own, which okay. I, I think uh, only only add to the again, that kind of haunting beauty of, of Jeff Buckley. Yeah, yeah. My, my memories with this song, they mainly stem from September 11th, 2001. I, I remember returning home after being let out early from work and I watched the remainder of that horrible day unfold on television. And I can remember sitting on the couch and as the sun was setting over Manhattan, the TV network that I was watching just started playing this song, Hallelujah. And right there in front of my roommate, I started crying my eyes out. So I'm getting goosebumps right now, just talking about, it. and I, I, I remember that. And part of it was, a lot of it was that moment, of course, but the song just brought that all out. So I think that's a lot of what I go back to when I hear this song. So now, as I mentioned, this is a, a Leonard Cohen song that was um, on his 1984 album, Various Positions. Um, leave that up to you guys to determine what he meant by that. It received really little notoriety initially. And in, in 1991, singer John Cale recorded the song for a Leonard Cohen tribute album titled I'm Your Fan. And this is really the version that inspired Jeff to cover it for uh, his album Grace. And as Brian was just saying, this song was sort of the gateway. It really became, you know, widely, widely popular yeah, I, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about, you know, Hallelujah or, or anything else that it may have affected you, Brian. I've heard of I'm Your Fan, which is a clever nod to Leonard Cohen's album, I'm Your Man from 1988. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. I did not know that uh, Jeff Buckley picked this up more from John Cale's version than from Leonard Cohen's. I didn't either. Discussed with Lilac Wine. I think when you hear Katie Lang sing this song, when you hear Rufus Wainwright sing this song, 
I think they're covering Jeff Buckley. Yeah, I think the same. And I, yeah. it's just, it's, it's fascinating to see how music like this can evolve over the years through, through the decades, through genres, um, and to, to hear music that gets covered over and over that's not necessarily covering the same song. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, uh, in a weird way, it's kind of like the game telephone, you know, when it finally gets to the, the final person and it's, it's got a variation to it. Right. And sometimes that can be a good variation and sometimes it's totally messed up. So some of my favorite songs are covers that are not precise covers. I think Aretha Franklin's respect just totally. kind of turned the original inside out. I think when yeah. Patti Smith sang Gloria, she wasn't singing the same song that totally. them were singing in 1966. She was uh, using a template and creating art of her own. And I think yep. that Buckley kind of did the same here. There's a lot of that now going on too. Uh, you know, I've had several conversations with guests on my podcast about, you know, YouTube and how I love it, but I also, sometimes it frustrates me because there's just so many options out there. But a lot of, I've been introduced to a lot of um, amateur musicians that have done different versions of different covers. For instance, I, one coming to my mind is a, a cover of the song Creep by Radiohead and I'm blanking on the artist, but I'll have to go back and find it. But it was kind of like a jazzy, opera-y kind of cover version and it was beautiful and I would argue and I apologize Lord but it might it, it might almost be as good if not better and I heard this at a party in North Carolina about five years ago and I was hooked for like a month I, I had to listen to it every single day so Brian you bring up a great point that in many cases you know what's the addition to the song or the 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 art that plays into the song is the way the you know the musician that's covering it puts their kind of own twist on it. Yeah, that's a great great point. Believe it or not, after his death, Buckley the Buckley version of this song, uh, probably going against his wishes, they were used in many film and television dramas. So I was looking this up. Uh, it was included in The West Wing, uh, the show Crossing Jordan, Without a Trace. The OC, which I remember watching, uh, Third Watch, another show called LAX, and then another show called Justica, which I've never heard of before. Time Magazine quoted Jeff Buckley's publisher as saying, Hallelujah can be joyous or bittersweet, depending on what part of it you use. I thought that was really interesting. The, the magazine's view in their article was that this song's liberal use, in some cases, was a... Um, kind of a, an admission that neither the writers nor the actors could convey their characters emotions as well as Buckley. They were giving that, you know, that props to Jeff. On April 20th, 2013, I found out that Buckley's version of the song was played at Fenway Park during a tribute honoring the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing before the Red Sox played their first home game following that tragedy. When Jeff first played Hallelujah Live, you could hear a feather drop. And it was at that moment, Dave Laurie, Jeff's manager, said everyone knew he tapped into something extraordinarily special. As this song, Hallelujah and Grace, became more popular, Jeff's preference really was to kind of shy away from the attention. He, he even, <laughs> Brian, I don't know if you knew this, he, he actually disappeared for a while during this time. 
And he ended up applying to be a butterfly keeper at the Memphis Zoo. And what I didn't find out was if he actually got the job. (laughs) But after achieving a lot of commercial success with Grace, he just wanted to disappear into the unknown. When you were doing some digging, Brian, did you, you know, did you get into it all or learn a little bit about kind of his, you know, depression and anxiety that he had experienced? I hadn't heard the butterfly story. Yeah, pretty Uh, interesting. I know that. It is. I know that he did struggle with his fame, which I think is is pretty common for musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that as he was recording the songs that would have been on My Sweetheart the Drunk, yep. um, he was, he found that he didn't like playing for arenas and sold out concert venues. And he started uh, recording under various pseudonyms. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yep. He started recording under various pseudonyms at small cafes and dive bars and just yeah. any any atmosphere that made him feel comfortable. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think is fascinating. I think that probably would have done a lot for Kurt Cobain if he would have been able to right. kind of find that part of himself again and kind of celebrate being a musician in the way he wanted to, the way got to yeah it's a great point yeah i mean he's a true artist and i know that that's kind of a cliche term but another example which i found out that i think defines him as a true artist jeff actually turned down fifty thousand bucks to use one of his songs on the album on the tv show homicide so i looked into it this was a show that aired from 93 to 99 it starred richard belzer uh andre brower and the late Ned Beatty, the guy from Superman and Deliverance. This was just the kind of guy Jeff was, you know, Chris Dowd, his buddy was quoted as saying, quote, I know that the idea of him being a star made him incredibly uncomfortable. Being written up in the tabloids with Courtney Love and whatnot, that freaked him out. But he wanted to buy every newspaper and burn it because he was embarrassed. He was kind of like this reluctant rock star, unquote. So, Coincidentally and untimely, one of the last things Jeff said to his manager, Dave Laurie, before he died was, Dave, I'm ready to be popular. And after years of telling Dave that he wanted nothing to do with pop and popularity. So just an interesting connection there. It seems like, you know, he was, he was really ready to maybe let that go. And so this just makes his death even more tragic. So... Moving on to the next song, Lover, You Should Have Come Over. This is the seventh track on the album, Grace. Door 
I see the rain fall upon the funeral mourners Parading in a wake of sad relations As their shoes fill up with water Inspired by the ending of the relationship between Jeff and Rebecca Moore, who is an American musician, actress, and human rights activist, the song is about, quote, the despondency of a young man growing older, finding that his actions represent a perspective he feels that he should have outgrown, unquote. The only word that comes back to me, again, can you guys guess it? Romantic, <laughs> heavily romantic. I'm going to keep saying it. I, I remember riding the T to work in Boston one day, listening to this on my disc man and just stopping in my tracks. This is, this is the effect that music and really this album had on me. And I'm sure Brian as well, you know, which motivated him to write his two books. Uh, on this entire album, I feel the lyrics, it's never over. She's a tear that hangs inside my soul forever. Forget it. It's over. Hands down, the best Jeff has ever written. It's just, it was so moving. And Jeff always said when he was writing, all women influence me in some way or another. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Brian, what are your thoughts about the song, Lover, You Should Have Come Over? The, the lyric you called out is so similar to my favorite Jeff Buckley lyric, which is my kingdom for a kiss upon the shoulder. Totally. Uh, yeah, just, he, he had a way with words and I, I can't argue that he was a romantic. I think this is another song that kind of bucks the classic rock trend. It's kind of a torch song. It feels to me like totally this is what Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett would have sung if they right. had the vocal range. Right. And if they had the emotional depth and that that may feel like a shot at the two of them. And I have a lot of respect for both of them. But Jeff Buckley was a singer on another level. I've also heard that Jeff Buckley had some influence on Radiohead, uh, which is my favorite band of all time. And I, I hear it here, at least in the willingness to try something bigger. Uh, this is not an attempt to be a rock star. This is an right. attempt to mine the depths of his own soul and his own experience for something that someone out there would relate to. And just he just puts out another beautiful piece of art that shows up on a rock album. Yeah, yeah, well said, for sure. Um, like many other songs on this album, Lover, You Should Have Come Over, which I got to say, I think the title itself is cheesy. When I saw it on the back of the record, I was like, eh, maybe I'll get to this song eventually. But I could argue this might be my favorite song on the record. It's hard for me to, to pick one. But this track was actually covered by many artists. And I looked up the list. It was um, a bunch of different artists. Uh, English jazz pianist Jamie Cullum, uh, American singer-songwriter John Mayer, Australian singer-songwriter Matt Corby, Texas singer-songwriter Natalie Maines, 
and the English rock band, Nothing But Thieves. Now I haven't heard any of their versions, but I'm going to go back this weekend and listen to them. And like a couple others, this song was also featured on several TV shows. Of course, this was after <laughs> Jeff's death. So Brian, you, uh, you mentioned something earlier in the podcast that I wanted to get to now. The song Corpus Christi Carol is another cover. And I looked into this a little bit more, also known as Falcon Carol. This song makes you feel like it's Christmas Eve and you're listening to a beautiful choir in church. Only this version is just one man and his guitar. What are your thoughts about this song, Corpus Christi Carol? If I recall correctly, this is a cover of a song from the 15th century. Is that, That's right. Is that true? Yeah. That's right. Yep. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that there's just an opera song that happens to show up on this rock album uh, yeah. and, and Corpus Christi Carol is just, I, I can't name a song like this that shows up somewhere else in my, probably my top several hundred albums of all time. Yeah. Uh, it actually makes me wish I did listen to more opera and classical music. That's a, a genre I've only briefly studied. Um, and couldn't tell you a lot about, uh, but I'm just so grateful to artists like like Jeff Buckley that connect with an audience, recognizing that they are probably making music for young people, teenagers and 20 somethings of the time. And they're gonna give them the last goodbye to, to hook them in. <laughs> they're gonna exactly. give them a rock song like Grace. And they're gonna, then they're gonna say- Like hook us in. Kid, right? Like hook us in. And then, right. yeah. And then you and I throw on the album and then we find a song like this, Corpus Christi Carol. I was looking this up. The original writer of the the song remains anonymous, um, but inspired by a version of the song that Janet Baker made in 1967, Jeff wanted to put this on his record. So like Brian was saying, this is a very different song compared to the other nine tracks, but Jeff felt that this song was uh, a quoting him, a fairy tale about a Falcon who takes the beloved of his singer to an orchard. The singer goes looking for her and arrives at a chamber where his beloved lies next to a bleeding knight and a tomb with Christ's body in it, end quote. So who says things like this? Like the music I was listening to in 1994, it was like, what do you think about your last album? Uh, well, I don't remember really. I was drinking so much Jack Daniels, you know, and then you get a guy like Jeff Buckley and he's interviewed, Jeff, what do you think about Corpus Christi Carol? Why'd you put it on the album? well, it's a fairy tale about a falcon who takes the beloved. Like, it, Jeff was just a, a, of a different 
a different level. I, I, and I, again, I just had so much fun going back and reading about him, but also watching interviews with him and just seeing how in touch with his soul and his emotions that he was and not in like a annoying way, like, Oh, this guy's going to cry every time, you know, the wind blows from the West. He's, he's just so in touch with his, his intentions and his emotions. And, um, and I feel like everything that comes out of the guy's mouth, it's just, it's what he feels. He's, he's just going to hit you right between the eyes with the truth. And, and I think that's why so many people loved him. I agree. I, yeah. I, I think a lot of this comes back to that losing his dad as a young age, moving around a lot as a kid, just, he, he lived a life in a short time. And he sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into his relationship with his dad or, I mean, you know, the lack thereof in a little bit, but getting on to the next track, the ninth track on this album, Eternal Life. Now this one brings you back to like a rock and roll album, Brian. I, I would characterize this as a, a heavy song. You know, I think this one fits more with the mid 90s genre. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's almost metal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Distorted guitars. Yeah. Uh, the lyrics are more intense. Um, I think, and you seem to have dived a little deeper than I did into Jeff Buckley's personal history. I think this is the first song he wrote among the songs that ended up on Grace. Uh, I don't know. That's a, that, that could very well be. I'm not sure. I, I did not uh, come across that information, but that could very well be the case. I think I read that he wrote this song in his early 20s when he was first, I mean, he had been playing a lot of covers uh, and he was first starting to write his own music. And so uh, interesting that it would sound so different than what's on the rest of this album. I think it's a good point. This album could have, with Hallelujah, with Lover You Should Have Come Over, with Corpus Christi Carol, it had lifted us up, brought us back down, and it could have ended, I think. Right. An eternal life showing up as the second to last song on the album, I think, was this like recommitment. <laughs> it was like, yeah. I'm not done. Like, let me yeah. tell you a little bit more about who I am on my right. debut album. that were released in 94 i mean i could pick, pluck out a couple but a lot of them they they stuck to one kind of genre right and i just i i feel like this album is all over the place with that in in a in a good way and you're right you know they he's got the hooks that pull you in but then you listen to more 
there's another artist and I'm going to do another podcast about him in the future, but there's another guy who got his start in the Boston subway system named Martin Sexton, who I think is a lot like Jeff Buckley. And I did a review that's on my website, albumreview.net about him. Mart Marty and Jeff were kind of coming up around the same time. He pulls you in with those kind of rocky songs, but then you buy his album and nine out of the 10 tracks are like gospel and yodeling and I remember people used to laugh at me in college, be like, what are you listening to, man? Of course, then I'd fast forward to the next track and it would be just Marty and an acoustic guitar. What is this, you know? So I love moments like that when all of us, you know, who may be uncomfortable with our, you know, whatever, we, we, we feel strong in our masculinity, but we're able to let our guard down and admit that music can bring us to a different level. Uh, of emotion, you know, so everything about this song, it's a, it's a great running song. It's a great workout song. It'll pump you up. It'll get your blood flowing. And I believe this was the fourth and final single from Jeff's grace album. Like I said, you know, like Brian alluded to definitely more radio friendly. And um, I think this one was really influenced a lot. Uh, Brian, like you were saying earlier, he wrote it uh, a bit earlier than some of the other tunes, but it was really influenced by his love for Led Zeppelin. You know, certainly a departure from some of the other softer tracks. This one just rocks. Um, in an interview, Jeff was quoted when he was describing this song saying, this is quote, an angry song. Life's too short and too complicated for people behind desks and people behind masks to be ruining other people's lives, initiating force against other people's lives on the basis of their income, their color, their class, their religious beliefs, their whatever, unquote. I mean, just an awesome quote right there, especially when he says for people behind desks, right? So I know that was me for, well, in some ways it still is uh, for many, many years. And so in Buckley's own words, eternal life was inspired by a few things, including his anger, over James Earl Ray, the man who shot Martin Luther King. Also his anger over World War II and the Manson murders, which I found kind of interesting as well. Brian, I don't know if you knew any, anything about that. I didn't know any of the history. That's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. I also have never heard a Jeff Buckley song on the radio and couldn't have told you which were the singles, though I'm sure I would have guessed Last Goodbye first. Yep. have to imagine somebody who did hear these four singles on the radio and said i'm gonna go check out jeff buckley was in for a bit of surprise <laughs> totally lover you should have come over and and who knows to this day i don't know if that was jeff's decision or if that might have been like the record company or his manager but a brilliant move from a business standpoint because yeah if they had could you imagine if they had released uh, Corpus Christi Carol is, is the first single. Um, you know, it, it, maybe my grandparents would have gone out and bought it. You know, other than that, uh, I, I probably wouldn't have. So again, just another testament to, you know, who he was and everything. For most studio copies of the Grace album, Dream Brother is the last track on the original release. Jeff wrote this song with his bass player, Mick Grondel. I hope I pronounced that right. And his drummer, Matt Johnson. The three wrote it as an urge for Jeff's friend, Chris Dowd of Fishbone, not to walk out on his pregnant girlfriend in a similar way Jeff's own father, Tim Buckley did. So as I was saying earlier, Brian talked about Tim in this podcast. Jeff rarely, if ever, wanted to talk about his father. He was known for walking out of interviews when asked about his dad. And Jeff writes a message to his dear friend, Chris, in the song, Dream Brother, when he sings, quote, don't be like the one who made me so old. 
Don't be like the one who left behind his name because they're waiting for you like I waited for mine and nobody ever came, end quote. Man, really, really deep lyrics again there. listeners are going to learn a little bit about you and me and our dynamic when you uh, dive into the lyrics and I tell you what the song sounds like because that <laughs> tends to be what I what moves me with music um, it's it's ominous just pounding drums kind of a start stop dynamics what this reminds me of more than anything else is Jane's addiction and when we yeah. talk about the early 90s there's not much of a higher compliment than a song that sounds like a great Jane's addiction song yeah. Again, this is where the copy I had on CD ends with Eternal Life and Dream Brother. And he hits you hard twice to close out the album. And to me, this makes me want the next one. It, yeah. it really makes me wish that there were another Jeff Buckley album and I could see what happened after this. Jeff was asked about the song Dream Brother and he stated in an interview, quote, Dream Brother is about a friend of mine who's led a rather excessive life. He's in trouble. This song is for him. I know what self-destruction can lead to, and I've tried to warn him. But I'm one big hypocrite because when I called him up and told him about the song I'd written, that same night I took an overdose of hash and woke up the next day feeling terrible. It is very hard not to give in to one's negative feelings. Life is total chaos, end quote. It seemed to me that doing this research, Jeff really, really cared about his relationship with Chris Dowd. And to this day, Chris still, you know, says his heart is completely broken. The title Dream Brother was used also for a biography of Jeff and his father, Tim. Brian, I don't know if you if you knew this, it was a, a, a book written by journalist David Brown. It was also used as the name of an album called Dream Brother, the songs of Tim and Jeff Buckley which featured covers of both Tim and Jeff's music from various artists. Brian, were you aware of this, um, this book uh, that uh, David Brown wrote about Jeff and Tim? I wasn't. Yeah. Another thing that I want to go check out and pick up, I'm going to put it up on the albumreview.net website. Just go to the bookstore. There's going to be that and a ton of other books up there as well. So Brian, uh, interested in getting your thoughts on this, but I, 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 Buckley was an incredibly, Jeff was an incredibly spiritual person he kind of reminds me of Jim Morrison. You know, they were both very passionate, well-educated, articulate, and deliberate. Now, I don't know if 
Jeff necessarily had the substance abuse problem that Jim did. But what I liked about both of them too, is that they were all also very self-deprecating. They were really willing to sacrifice whatever it took to save their art and not, you know, not get commercialized. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. It's not a direction I thought this conversation would take. <laughs> Jim Morrison is a larger than life figure, owing in part to his own personality, in part to his era. The late 60s were just ground zero for so much of the rock that we know today. Yeah. He's, you know, he's known as a shaman, um, as this spirit wandering a earth that he wasn't necessarily sent for. And I think a lot of that gets lampooned today. I think a lot of people are over Jim Morrison and I understand that. I mean, I had my doors period. I was heavily into the doors in college. I think a lot of us were. I don't throw on a doors record anymore. I wonder if that'll happen with Jeff Buckley. I mean, I'm inclined to say the two of them had such different experiences in similar lengths of life and in similar fields. Right. Jim Morrison died at 27 and the Doors had already released six studio albums. Right. Jeff Buckley died at 30, one studio album into his career. Right. And a lot of that is his era. It speaks to his era. It speaks to how artists were compensated. It speaks to the fact that you're going to make more money touring than you are releasing albums. The Doors would knock off two albums in a year. Right. And then they'd go off on their little tour. They'd probably write songs while they were touring, yep. get back in the studio, whip out another album. Really different experiences. The reason why I brought up Jim was just because when I was in my Doors phase, I remember telling my parents that I was into the Doors and the look on their faces, they were like, are you kidding me? You like that guy, Jim Morrison? I mean, they remember Jim. They were in college when the Doors were famous. And, you know, they, they're thoughts of him were just this wasteoid drunk who exposed himself on stage. That is accurate. However, when you really dig deep into who Jim was, he was an incredibly intelligent man. He was incredibly passionate. He was incredibly articulate. And like I said, he was deliberate. You know, he told you what he thought. Now, he was kind of, Jim was on this path to self-destruction, whereas you might argue Jeff really wasn't, you know, Jeff had some pain, but you know, Jeff, he told his manager before his unfortunate death, like, I think I'm ready to take on this pop thing and just sort of be okay with things and just not worry so much or be so focused on it's got to be this way and not that way. But during that journey that Jeff had, you know, I just, I, 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 I likened it a lot to Jim Morrison, folks that grew up around the time my parents did you know, they, they would have been shocked to, to hear anyone say that Jim's actually an intelligent guy, well-read, very well-educated, but he was. And it's just, it's clear to me within seconds of watching or listening to an interview with Jeff Buckley, how intelligent he is. Now, Jeff Buckley, what I had actually never experienced was him live. I didn't get a chance to see him live, but I did watch a lot of his performances um, over the internet. And when you compare some of his live performances to his album, he is borderline perfect. We, we really lost a remarkable talent that day in 97. So uh, going back to a 1994 interview, 
Jeff once noted, quote, everybody knows what it's like to create an artistic moment. Well, I don't know about that. Some people do, Jeff, but anyway, back to the quote. Quote, it's just a heightened human language. If you've spent a night making love, you know exactly what it means to strip your ego down where you are there expressing yourself wordlessly, collaborating on a moment that has an energy about it that is replenishing. That is what art really is, end quote. Now, I don't know if D. Snyder from Twisted Sister is saying things like this in his interviews, right? So um, <laughs> uh, in terms of Jeff's Lord God, apparently that was Jimmy Page. Jimmy was really the godfather of Jeff's music. And a lot of people thought his dad, Tim, was really the influence on Jeff. But, you know, Brian, like you were saying earlier, it really was Zeppelin. It, it really was. I hear more Led Zeppelin than I hear Tim Buckley and Jeff Buckley's music. Yeah. yeah. Responding to your earlier notes, ignorance is bliss, right? And I think certainly Jeff Buckley and probably Jim Morrison as well had a lot of empathy. And there is a lot of darkness and a lot of pain in the world. And the more, attention you give that and the more of your life that you devote to lifting up those who have been hurt and oppressed and marginalized, the more tortured you're going to be. And I think right. it's easy to kind of close your eyes to a lot of the, the evils in the world and, and look, for, look for what Motley Crue was looking for rather than looking for what Jeff Buckley was looking for. Right. And you're going to enjoy life a little more. Uh, for <laughs> <worse>. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think crew definitely felt, you know, seemed like they were having a lot more, a lot more fun, but it wasn't, I don't want to make this all about Motley Crue, but they were a huge influence on me as a kid, more so just because I was attracted to their decadence. I just think a lot now about some of the music that I've gotten into later in life and how I really looked at Motley Crue as kind of being like the, that's what, you know, I want to live like that life. You know, when I kind of look back now, I see the, the self-destructive path that they were on. And if you've ever read um, their book, The Dirt, which I think is much better than, than their movie, it really goes deep into each, each, you know, each of the band members. And it just shows they did not have good upbringings at all. And, uh, you know, it's a little cliche, but I think that's also, you know, what maybe led to some of Jeff's heartache, right? Um, you know, you, you dive into any kind of psychology of somebody, especially an artist like Jeff. And um, it's probably obvious that you're going to, you know, peel back the onion and find some skeletons in the closet, right? But I just, I think artists like Jeff and a lot more artists in the 90s sort of handled it a different way. So for better or for worse, right? I mean, Props to the crew for partying and having a great time and not uh, freaking out because um, XYZ channel played their album and they, you know, they didn't want to commercialize it. So, okay, Brian, if you haven't had a chance yet, read the book, Jeff Buckley from Hallelujah to Last Goodbye, written by Jeff's former manager, Dave Laurie. You feel like you're talking to Dave when you read this book. So like I said, you can pick up a copy of this in the bookstore at albumreview.net. And in this book, Dave, who also managed the Allman Brothers band at one time, he writes, quote, Jeff could pick you apart in regard to nailing down all your mannerisms in five minutes after meeting you, end quote. When this book was first published, Lori noted, quote, there were a lot of incorrect things written about Jeff, and I wanted to write the truth, end quote. When Dave wrote the chapter about Jeff's death, 
he said he cried for three days. He said he never really grieved until that very moment. Jeff was a composer, Lori said. He wasn't a songwriter, so it took him longer to write songs than most artists. So Brian, I, I don't know if you knew this or found this out in your research, but strangely, Jeff's music was not as big in the US. I think you had alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it was massive in the rest of the world, especially Europe. So, I mean, to add on to that, I, I, think, I think a lot of it has to do with maybe at least in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, kind of the freedom that people had in, uh, in Europe. There wasn't as much of this focused commercial direction of like, this is the song you need to listen to. And I've spoken many times in previous podcast episodes about how I kind of missed that because although it was radio stations and MTV telling me what I needed to listen to, I at least used that as a door opener. And then I would go to the record store to buy that album. And while I was at the record store, that's when I would discover new things. So I personally do miss those days. So Jeff's closest friend, Chris, who we've talked about a ton on this podcast, he felt that Grace connected with him more than so many others. He felt it had great timing. Jeff wanted a second guitar player and Michael Ty was there. Jeff needed someone to follow what he did. And it was very strategic the way he picked these guys who are seasoned musicians now. And they sounded unbelievably great on Grace. I know, Brian, you talked about his band earlier, you know, that they kind of many times got overlooked. The, the attention was really, you know, mostly on Jeff when his band played a crucial part in his success as well. Yeah. And as you mentioned, his band changed from time to time. I think they were consistent throughout the recording of Grace, but he never really settled on a backing band. I wonder if he had, if they would have had a, I wonder if they would have recorded under a band name as opposed to under Jeff Buckley's name. Right. Chris remembered Jeff as a, a person who had no filter, which was both hilarious and priceless. I'm quoting Chris again. And rare. He had no agenda. He was air and earth unfettered. Tell me how many people in your life that you've known like that that still have a childlike innocence, a Zen-like understanding of human beings and a heart as big as a whale, unquote. So don't just take it from Brian and I. Grace was also declared his favorite album of the decade by Led Zeppelin guitarist, Jimmy Page. Robert Plant, lead singer for Zeppelin was equally complimentary which I think is rare as I feel that Robert Plant frequently bashes other artists in the media. Sometimes I want to jump right through the TV when I see these interviews and go, come on, Robert, don't be like that, man. We've had so many good times together, you and me. Why are you dissing on my other favorite artists? So some other well-known people that have commented in the past about Jeff's music, actor Brad Pitt. I don't know if anybody out there has ever heard of him. He's, he's somewhat of a well-known actor. He might not be too well-known, but... He was a Thumb on Louise, right? He might, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that might have been his only movie. Brad mentioned the influence that Grace had on him in an interview that was unrelated to music. Pitt noted, quote, there's an undercurrent to his music. There's something you can't pinpoint. Like the best of films or the best of art, there's something going on underneath and there's a truth there. And I find his stuff absolutely haunting. It's just, it's under my skin end quote. Really cool. Uh, others who had influenced Buckley's music applauded him. Uh, Bob Dylan named Buckley one of the best songwriters of the 1990s. And David Bowie, believe it or not, stated that Grace was arguably the best album ever made. 
and that it would be uh, one of his 10 desert island records. So Brian, yours, it was only 48 for you. Like, what's up with that, man? I, I wrote the book 20 years later that all these quotes <laughs> came out. There's a lot of good music that came out between the late nineties. I'm the, with you. No, I'm with 2010s. you. For the listeners, you got to pick up his book because it's hard for me to disagree with a lot of Brian's picks, but also the fun part of reading Brian's book is you're welcome to disagree with them. That's kind of what somewhat of the purpose is, is to create that conversation. Well, no, actually, I think that this is the, you know, 10th best album. And some of you out there might not even care, but that's okay too. I think, uh, I think it's a lot of fun to mix and match and talk about different albums because at the end of the day, what you're getting out of it is you're learning about new stuff that could turn you on and give you that feeling that you, you know, you crave. I know I do every day. So I think when it comes to ranking albums and the ways we experience music, I come to grace as an observer, not as a sympathizer. Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced the torture that I hear on that album. I don't listen to these lyrics and think that could be me. Um, that to me is no less powerful. Uh, just, just as an observer, I'm blown sure. away by it. Just yeah. the, the way he, again, mines his soul and, and wears his emotions uh, and, and brings it forward. But I think there are going to be albums that speak to people in different ways. And totally. Uh, for for David Bowie to think this was uh, the best album ever, well, David Bowie knows a thing or two about fame. A little bit, yeah. I think he probably was able to put himself in uh, Jeff Buckley's shoes, uh, maybe more so than I was. That said, this is still one of my 50 favorite albums of all time. It, yeah. It's an album that, that, that resonates deeply, even if it's not on a, a personal level, but more on a, I, I can see this and empathize with this other human going through this level. Yeah. And, and even more so, I mean, Brian took the time over years and years to literally put this down on paper and put it in a book. So it's, it's legitimized now. And he's got, he's got his list. And I think a lot of times I'll say, Oh, this is my 25th favorite album, you know, and then two weeks later, I'm like, Oh, this same album is my 27th, whatever, you know, I it's think documented. Uh, I'm not sure it's legitimized. <laughs> <laughs> it's documented and it's legitimized, you know? So again, I just enjoyed reading it because, um, I found myself putting it down several times only to just pull open my phone and and listen to a song off an album that I didn't really know much about. So, well, getting back to this album, Grace, in closing, I feel it's necessary to mention Jeff's former manager, Dave Laurie's comments after his book tour from For Hallelujah to Last Goodbye ended. Dave Laurie said, quote, somebody asked me what I was going to do when this book tour was finished. I told them after the last book signing gig, I'm going to get on the plane in Sydney. I'm going to fly back and I'm going to look up. And while holding back his tears, Dave then says, and I'm going to say to Jeff, I hope I did you proud. And then I'm never going to talk about him again. So that gave me goosebumps when I saw that. And it's giving me goosebumps right now, just, just talking about it. And I think that's what's just so moving about Jeff and the people around him. So Brian, for us in this review, I hope Jeff would feel that we did him proud. In closing, Brian, thank you so much for being a part of this review and the albumreview.net podcast again, man. You've brought a ton of additional insight into the magic of this record. And I hope the listeners out there 
who have not heard this album yet will get a copy of their own because this album, it's purchase worthy. Uh, Jeff Buckley touched a lot of lives in his 30 years. And I think a lot of people have had the experience that you and I have had listening to Grace. I think that anyone who hasn't absolutely should run out and find it on whatever their streaming service, buy it on CD. Uh, really incredible album that while the influences are diverse, while it taps into various genres, I think it's also, it has universal appeal. It's Without easy to listen to and it's a, it's a beautiful piece of music. And you can put it on while your kids are in the room with you. You can put it on when your grandparents are in the room with you and they'll probably yell at you when the, you know, one of the tracks gets too loud and it's too rocky, but then they'll probably be sitting down going, what the heck is this when they hear Hallelujah or they hear Corpus Christi Carol. I know there were records like this that helped me bond with my, you know, my parents. And those moments were so special to me because all I wanted was for my parents to understand how the music that I listened to made me feel. And when I had opportunities for that, I grabbed them. So Brian, thanks again, man. You've been a great guest and I really appreciate your insight and reading your book. It really inspired me to pull this album back out again and have fun. And I learned so much. And I think that all stemmed from reading, you know, your book for the record, my favorite albums from 1957 to 2017. So thanks again, man. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. And I learned a lot about Jeff Buckley today too. Awesome. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast. And I hope you enjoyed our review today of Jeff Buckley's Grace. Such an absolute classic. And thank you again to Brian O'Connor for joining me a second time and reviewing this album with me. As I mentioned before, you can pick up a copy of both of Brian's books, For the Record, My 1000 Favorite Albums from 1957 to 2017, and Time Decorated, A History of Popular Music in 12 Playlists, just by going to the bookstore at albumreview.net. If you're interested in any of the albums I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Lastly, I do want to hear from you, so please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. Stay tuned for updates on Instagram, join the mailing list, which is on the homepage of the website, or just keep refreshing your podcast feed. Just read and listen. All right, thanks again, guys. Keep on listening, keep on reading, and keep on learning. trip down by the highway take a 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 trip down